Anita, how's your mental health? <laughs> Questionable <laughs> at all times. You know this. Yeah. How's the mental health of your children? Um, also a little bit tricky. Can I tell you my experience in trying to find therapists for myself and my kids, Mel? Yes, please. Okay. This is how it goes. You ask around your friends and your family for a referral for somebody who's nearby. You finally find somebody who sounds like they might work for your family. You give them a call and you find out that A, they're not accepting new patients or B, they have a huge wait list. So you start over again and you ask people if they know anybody who would be a good therapist and a good fit. Finally, you find one, you go and you meet with them and you figure out that you don't actually like them that much. But it's been so much work to find somebody who you can go to in your area that you're kind of stuck with them. Well, do you have any ideas for how to get around this? Um, I do, because guess what? I've actually had some therapists that I have found on my own, which involves what you're saying. Sometimes I remember one time I was like three hours in the bathtub on my phone looking through yeah. websites. I was such a prune at the end. But I have also had the experience with working with BetterHelp and it was like, I, I don't want to say too good to be true, but because it is true, but it's like amazing because I was matched with my therapist within 24 hours. And you didn't have to go through all of that other ridiculous process of trying to find somebody. And here's the cool thing too, is if that person didn't work out for you, you can just switch and say, and it's not like you're committing to another years long search for somebody who you're going to jive with. It's true. And I lucked out or maybe just BetterHelp is really good at matching people together because I never had to change my therapist. I loved her. Perfect fit for me. And I know that some of our friends have used BetterHelp and they've had to change therapists and boom, same day can change. Easy peasy. You can ghost your therapist. <laughs> Get a new one. I love this idea. BetterHelp is one of our sponsors. If you use our promo code, trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN, you get 10% off your first month and we totally recommend it. Yes. Get some therapy. That's <laughs> trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN. Everybody hear ye, hear ye. Anita and I are recording this not on a Sunday night. So I don't hate everybody. How are you feeling? I'm telling you what, other days are better than Sundays. My kids are at school, so I'm like, living it up. Can we talk about our adventure yesterday? <laughs> Please. We better. I mean, I feel like you can't not say anything about what happened. Tell the people. So I was at work yesterday, and I get this text from Mel, and she shows me a picture of some Care Bear suits, and she was like, Anita do we need these? And so my answer was, yeah. So after work, she brought them over and we donned our Care Bear suits and went and got tacos. It's true. They were rompers. I'd never seen a onesie romper in Care Bear form before. Anita was Grumpy Bear and I was Cheer Bear. Which is kind of appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> Especially on Sundays, which today is not. I'm wearing that to church on Sunday. <laughs> You're going to get in trouble because it is above the knee. It's way above the knee, guys. They were sh they were a little bit um they were a little bit risqué for my taste. I love that that was risqué. I have I know. but you know what? You have great legs cuz you're a marathon runner and a biker. So <laughs> no one feels bad for you. Okay, fine. They should feel bad for me for other reasons though, like I'm a widow. 
Can we talk about how when you're a widow, you kind of just don't care about anything? Mm-hmm. Which is why we had so much fun. It was really fun. And the other people in the restaurant were kind of like, what? But there was a little kid who wanted to be our friend. <laughs> so it was fun. We have had a couple adventures this week. We also rode bikes. Mm-hmm. Also good times, good times. Yeah. So things are looking up because it's not Sunday. So everyone everyone probably has a crappy Sunday, right? I know that widows hate weekends. Weekends are hard. I remember, like, especially in the first, like, few years, like, Sundays were the worst because that's when everybody is not working and everybody is with their families. And the widows are like, well, now everything's interrupted and my life is hard. So, yeah, hard times. So today, though, is supposed to be a day that Jason is doing a big bike race and it's a relay and his whole, like, friend group always used to do it. So today's always a day where I'm like, I play the should game. Like, he should be here. He should be with his friends. I hate the should game. Stop shoulding. I know. It's a different kind of shoulding, though, because it's not like should, like, I should be doing it. It's like, why is he dead? You're living in the shoulder. <laughs> it's when the should hit the fan. Yeah, the should. So you guys may have noticed that we didn't have a widow sewed last week, and that is because we are taking the time that we make widow sods to prepare for Camp Widow. widow. So yes. we might be we might be a little bit uh reclusive. What's the word, Mel? Well, here's the here's the deal. We're trying to get two out before we go to Camp Widow. So we will still have our weekly Monday released interview episode with a guest. And this coming Thursday, we will have a widow sode. Then the next week, it will just be the Monday so that we can prep. Then we're going to have one the following week. And then it's Camp Widow. So this is just so we can get our head together because it's a lot to prep for something where you can't edit it after. <laughs> Yeah, we're so excited to meet a bunch of you at Camp Widow, so hopefully hopefully some of y'all are coming. We know some of you are, but let us know. If you're coming or you have just decided to come or you're on the fence about coming, will you email us or post in the Widow Wives Club or comment on Instagram or message us? Because we really would love to see you guys when you are there. And if you're on the fence, we feel you, but let us know. Maybe it won't be so bad after all. We can help talk you into it. Or out of it. I don't know. Hey, come join us in the Widow Wives Club if you happen to be a widow, widower, or somebody who's lost their partner. We have a really supportive group. It's on Facebook. It's a private private group. We vet everybody who's in there so that you know that you belong. Just make sure when you submit your request that you submit all of the information that's asked for. Or we won't let you in. No. Like, really. Yep. Because we don't really have feelings, so. I have feelings about that. It makes me sad. I know. We actually do have feelings. I do have feelings about that. Just and wearing Care Bear suits to taco shops and caring what people <laughs> think. If you want to keep the podcast going, you can check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash WWDN. If you want to send us to the taco shop in Care Bear suits or whatever Mel comes up with, then visit... 
buymeacoffee.com slash widow we do now. One of the benefits of being a patron is that you get a shout out in the episode at a certain level and up. So we're going to do our shout out now. And that starts at the widow bestie and up. First, we're going to shout out to our secret dead husband. And to her, we say, and to all of you, oops, I'm a widow <laughs> again. No, what if that? <laughs> no, we do know some people where they've been widowed twice. But that, that was is really so funny. rude. Okay. Next is Constance Dahlbach. David Kelly. The tour guide from the UK. Don Satterwhite. Gail Paxton. Ivan the Meisner. Cat. Krista, wait. Hey, Krista, have you been having 8 million migraines this week? I have. Hmm. Amy. And Amy Sapp. Ashley Hahn. Christina Shiflett. Danielle Catterberg. Not a Debbie Downer. Dennis the Saxophone Brazo. Ooh, Jenny the Taylor. Jennifer Brown. I have a neighbor named Jennifer Brown, by the way. It's not you. I don't think. Dang it. Jenny Wang. I don't know. Kathy Murray. Spooky Scary Stromberg. Leslie Webb. Missy Schubertian Symphony Number 2. Woo, woo. Rachel Barbosa. Sarah Morris. Sylvia Mel's Mom Shore. She totally understands why I wear Care Bear onesies. <laughs> I don't think she does. She doesn't she's, even question it. Well, I think, I think she's, she's just, just come to like, accept it. This is normal. And Mel mm-hmm. has never changed since she's been four years old. Mm-hmm. The Winehouse Karen Cornejo, the world traveler. Vicky Spit, the widow of Kirkhoff. Hoff, yes. Anna Tracy. Christina Scambato. Christine Anderson. Cindy Raynaud, welcome. Mindy Holmgren. Don Barber. Debbie Fells. Diana Becker. Emily Thornton. Emily Toledo. Aaron Posick. Gabe Lozano. Ian Cini. Ileana Bell Ruiz. Jackie. My mom, who's on a plane. Oh, where are they going? San Antonio. Ooh, I hope you go to Mitieres. Or Tierra. Mitiere. Jenny Barrow. Jocelyn Milo. Fancy Lady Kirsch. Karina Jacobo. Katie Radcliffe. Kara Scara. Lori Farrington. Marie Hoffman. Marjorie Lewis. Mary McGowan. Peter Rukavina. Sarah Kennedy. Our cruise director. Shannon Helm. Sunshine the Haven. Tammy the Schwartz. Tara Wallace. Val the Packer of all the suitcases. Next we have AstroTurf Wendy. (laughs) That's the end. Oh, thank you everybody who is one of our patrons. We really are so humbled by your support. You guys are the best. Thank you. Now, there is a new development that we have talked about in the Widow Wives Club, in our newsletter, and I think maybe briefly on last week's first part of the podcast, we are starting to facilitate in-person meetups in your area. We have gotten 
great reception with people reaching out saying that they would like to facilitate. So if this is you, please email us and we will get you connected. We're working on getting a website up where we have contact information and information about the hangs. So we're in phase 1.2, moving towards phase two, which would be everything's up and running. So please let us know. Our email is widowwedonow at gmail.com. It's going to be great, guys. Yeah. Shall we get to the episode? Yes. Let's do it. I'm Anita. I'm Mel. We're two Care Bears. I'm Grumpy Bear. All the time. Except not right now. Yeah. I'm kidding. I'm Cheer Bear, Mel Shore. And we're two young widows just trying to figure out how Care Bear stare. Widow, we do now. This episode is brought to you by the Meisner Family Foundation, in memory of Elizabeth Meisner. Mel. What? Are you ready to have our fabulous guest introduced to us today? Yeah, because she's amazing and has her life all together, like we just <laughs> talked about before we hit record. Figured out. <laughs> and I just found out that this is exclusive access to her. I feel so fancy right now. I know. How did know. we get so lucky? I think she got confused. <laughs> she didn't know what she was saying yes to. You thought you were going to be on Oprah, but I'm sorry, it's me yeah. and Anita. I think we're the opposite of Oprah, like in every single way. That's why it was a joke. Did you get the joke? Anita? I know, but like <laughs> super opposite. Completely different experience. Let's introduce our guest. Hello, this is Janice Bell. Hi, Janice. Hi. Do you go by Janice all the time? Do you do Jan or any other, like, nicknames? Well, my husband would call me Jan. <laughs> Dang him. But, no, mostly mostly everybody calls me Janice, but I don't mind if people call me Jan. People just don't do it. What about Janice? Does anybody call you Janice? <laughs> That's really, really quite funny you ask. Um, because, no, that never happened. Until we moved to Texas. And when we lived in Texas, people pronounce my name that way often. So often that it was kind of like quite a running joke for many years. That's funny. I thought your name was Janice. Actually, it's like it must be an American thing or a more Southern American thing. I don't know. But you guys are in Utah, right? Yeah, so it makes no sense. That's so funny. Like, here, a name would never be that. And it would be like, like what, you're mixing up, like, Janice and Denise or something? Like, Where did you live before Texas? Okay, well, I am from Nova Scotia, Canada. It's the east coast of Canada, right up above Maine there. And that's where I am now. That's where I was born. That's where I live. And then I, Chris and I, my husband, we did quite a bit of traveling together. And we, we met in university. We were both geologists. What? No. Yes. Yes. Why? That's so cool. Well, where you guys live is really cool because it's, you were just at Powell Lake too, weren't you Mel? Yeah. Yeah. We, Chris and I went there and loved it and took a tour of the dam and all that stuff. And then kept driving all up through, you know, Zion and Bryce Canyon. That's all above there, right? And over to Colorado. It was like probably the most fantastic 
scenic trip I've ever taken. Are you in Halifax? I live, yeah, just outside Halifax. I live close to Peggy's Cove. If anybody's familiar with the famous lighthouse of Peggy's Cove, <laughs> it's like what tourists. I want do. to be familiar I, with it. Well, if you ever came here, you would know it was one of the first tourist things you had to do. I think it's, I could be wrong, but I think it might be the most photographed lighthouse in the world. Like somebody might prove me wrong, but anyways. So did you meet Chris in Nova Scotia? In university, in Halifax. In geology school? Yes. You guys were like looking at rocks and gems. Even better. Like we're in love. (laughs) Uh, When I was in first year geology, he was the teaching assistant. Oh. So I got really good marks and uh, did really well in that class. And we didn't start dating then, but there was, yeah, I think it was about two years. And then we, you know, finally really started dating. And he had, he graduated um, at the end of my first year. So I'd only see him in passing and through friends. Uh, But we came back together and we worked together ever since. So we were in Northern Canada in some pretty unique, like, fly in fly out camps and we did all kinds of wild stuff and then we went to rural Pennsylvania for a few years and we switched over from looking for uranium and gold to natural gas and worked on the drilling rigs in northern Pennsylvania and then when we got tired of that we moved down to Houston and then we decided it was time to move home and be close to our families and start our own family. Okay. So you guys like are like Indiana Jones, like the married couple. I know he was looking for artifacts. I know it's different, but just like the whole like, you know, digging and like looking, I don't know. I probably have the wrong vision of geology. I don't know. Maybe everybody grieves their past life when they are, you know, because of all the cool things that you do with your partner. But I mean, like we... We had a lifetime of adventure in, I don't know, 13, 14 years that we were together. It was, we did amazing things. And it's like, all of that's gone. Like half of those memories and everything that you shared are gone. When did you and Chris first meet? What was the year? September, 2003. Living away, we planned a wedding back home in Nova Scotia, I think like three times. And it just, was too hard to plan from away so we would keep postponing it or there was one year we hired a wedding planner then she canceled on us then another year the venue canceled on us and we were just like like it just forget this you know it wasn't working and it wasn't really important to us to get married so that wasn't working out and after we had moved home I was pregnant And we said, well, if we don't do it now, we're never going to do it. So we eloped. And um, we had seen pretty much all of the U.S. at that point, except for the West Coast. So we flew into L.A., um, drove up the coast. We got married in Big Sur and then flew home from Seattle. So it was kind of like the icing of the cake, checked off the rest of the boxes, on on our U.S. like touring travel 
and got married and I and, and had a baby. Wow, you guys <laughs> lived an adventurous life. That's amazing that you got to see so much and work together and have all those experiences. Yeah, we really did live, work, travel, everything together. Yeah. So what year did you guys have your first baby? November 2015, my first son was born. Um not without complications. It was pretty stressful and I almost I had to be resuscitated after that. Ah what happened? Probably just it was a dysfunctional labor and things weren't going well at all. Um and they had thought that I had an amniotic embolism, um, but it turned out that couldn't I was like the research case of the hospital with everybody coming to bother me every 15 minutes because like everybody's all the students coming to figure out, you know, this mystery, which really helps. Yeah. Things. So, and, and in the yeah. end they said, Oh, blood loss, you know? So, yeah, that was that, but it really kind of, I had a lot of recovery afterwards. Um, and it took the fun out of a new baby. So uh, I was looking forward to our second baby. I got my son was eight months old and I got pregnant again um, oh, on purpose. Oh, <laughs> but we were just oh. go, go big or go home. Anita, right? she did it on purpose. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm just stressed out for you right now. I'm just thinking of myself. Go take a Xanax and I'll continue with her. Okay, bye. I'll be right back. Okay. Go ahead. I don't regret it. But yeah, like what was I thinking? It was really tough period of time in my life and then my when I had her my father-in-law was in the hospital on life support so I was like are you kidding me I'm like not having this baby experience that I kind of thought after the first one then the second one you thought it would be a little bit different (sighs) but you know my my she was great no problem with that labor and then I got pregnant again (laughs) right away uh so i have you are a fertile myrtle man (laughs) yeah luckily um there didn't seem to be much trouble there i never that's not a part of grief i understand or have experienced myself and while i was eight or nine months pregnant somewhere in between the two um with my third child my husband was diagnosed with terminal cancer Sometimes we assume that unless we had a huge life insurance payout, we don't really need to know anything about investments or even finances. But guess what? A little knowledge of finances is critical for all of us. Maybe your partner was in charge of that stuff, and now you find yourself making all the decisions. Maybe you're mad about that. Maybe I am. Nicole from the He's Gone But The Money's Not podcast is here to help. She tackles financial literacy by telling the stories of women and widows and finance experts and shares the lessons they've learned as certified financial planners. Whether you know a lot and feel confident in your financial decisions or feel unsure about all of that stuff, there is more to learn. Listen and subscribe to the He's Gone But Then The Money's Not podcast on all podcast platforms. This ad was paid for by Rock House Financial, an SEC-registered investment advisor. You've never had a pregnancy that did not come with complications. And the third one, that was the complication. Mm, I know. And it was like, 
third time's a charm, you know, like there was death surrounding every, although I, I never said my father-in-law, he never actually died when they took him off life support. So he got better. I, I, I left that part out. So, <laughs> but huh. still, you know, it was like, there was, yeah, it's it was stressful. like a joke. Like you better yeah. not have any more babies. People die, you know, kind of thing. And it's like, yeah, I kind of realized that myself. <laughs> You're a young mom with two kids and a third kid now that's a newborn and your husband has terminal cancer. What kind of cancer did he have? He had cholangiocarcinoma, which is cancer of the bile ducts within your liver or between your liver and your pancreas. What led you guys to discover that he had cancer? Uh, He um, had swelling in his legs and his abdomen so badly um, that he could not move. He could hardly move. And I was like, you have got to go to the doctor. Like you've got to take time off work and you've got to get this figured out. Um, And he was extremely uncomfortable and it was still you know, weeks before we really knew what type of cancer he had, or, you know, within a few, two days, he had an ultrasound. And the doctor said, you have a few small spots on your liver, it might be cancer, you know, and I'm like, well, what does that mean? You know, and I do all my liver research about how the liver reheals itself, and you can section a liver, and it's really quite an amazing thing. And, you know, the liver transplants and all of that. we're, we're going to be okay. Right. Uh, and then Chris doesn't even really care about what his diagnosis is going to be. He's so uncomfortable with all this fluid, um, on his abdomen that we're begging for help. And he finally gets to see an internal doctor internist in the emergency room. And, he had 17 liters of fluid drained off of his stomach, which is ascites. And he was in end stages of cancer. And his, and the ultrasound actually had revealed where we got the truth that he had multiple tumors on his liver and the largest was 18 centimeters. Man, that's one of the, tricky things about that type of cancer, though, is that it doesn't have a lot of uh, symptoms in the beginning stages. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, I I mean, it was never, it's not necessarily a terminal diagnosis. And you search for hope wherever you can get it. But there really isn't much hope. Um, And that's even true for early diagnosed cases with small, small tumors. I mean, hopefully you can cut it out, but it just seems to be one of those cancers that you hear very few stories about people, you know, that it doesn't come back. Even if you do get rid of it, it just, it almost always seems to come back, um, which is really disheartening. So it's an evil cancer. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, my husband wasn't technically, it depends who would classify it. If you're going to say based on the size of it, um, it would be stage four, but no, it hadn't metastasized anywhere in his body. It was just 
all his whole liver was and actually um they believe that his liver that wasn't tumor was cirrhosed as well um was your oldest child about three he had just turned three so three one and a half and newborn when i had my baby my mary uh, my youngest so we were in the emergency room and i started i I was prepared and I started asking all the hard questions and I said, what do you, what do you mean by that? I can't remember what he said, but I think, you know, no, no chance of survival. Is that what you are saying when you say that? And he, he said, correct. Um, and I peed my pants and started throwing up. <laughs> I just, I, I, I probably threw up and peed my pants because of it, because I was, and I ended up being admitted to the hospital as well. Cause I just, my mother was there too. And I just like the wave of shock that came over me. Like it just, Oh, I almost, I'm going to cry. Like thinking about like those little moments of trauma, like are just so powerful. And it's, it's almost like, I don't know. You see them in the movies, but to experience those feelings where you just drop to the floor. I don't, I don't know what else to say those feelings but so I was pregnant and I ended up delivering early a few weeks early and they were actually offering induction to me because Chris had so many procedures at this point I was in the hospital with Chris on Friday I went into labor naturally on Saturday I came home on Sunday and I was back in the hospital with Chris on Monday with a baby in my arm. I feel like managing cancer, and this might be like a really weird comparison, but it's almost like a newborn baby. Like it takes so much time and effort. And so you have a newborn baby and then you're having to manage appointments and procedures and him feeling ill and not being able to do things. And so it's almost like you had two newborn babies, but one who was a very giant newborn baby plus a one-year-old one and a half year old and a three-year-old and we all know that one and a half and three-year-olds are super easy to manage like they're very cooperative they do everything you say they're like super good about eating and taking care of their own messes so I mean I don't know what we're I don't know what (laughs) was so hard I mean they just they're very (laughs) self-sufficient so what was your family support like how how did you manage that next little while I I I don't know and I had great family support. My mom essentially moved in with me. And my sister um, was around a lot. She was, she was still in school trying to finish her degree. Um, and she was having exams put off to be with me and take care of my kids. And my trauma in grief is not even from Chris dying. It was from having to take care of three children and a husband with pretty serious cancer and do that. I don't know. And yeah, it was, I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I got through it. I don't know how everybody involved got through it really, because like my household was just not, a nice place to be. The energy was awful. You know, somebody with terminal cancer, their mood changes a lot. They're in pain and they're scared and they've got three kids climbing on them and they don't want that. I, just trying to manage 
uh, having it's like the world is expecting you to do something that's impossible and you still have to do it and I was also determined that I would do everything I could to save Chris's life so once the kids and everybody was in bed I would get up and I would spend all night long on the computer and I read every research paper I could get my hands on and it's it's all I did. I don't think I slept for six months. Literally, I really just, it was such a relief when he died to not have that weight of having to save him on my shoulders. Because you could never stop. If you took a break or took one night off, you're not trying your hardest, you know, like you have, I had to spend every moment I could, you know, I, I breastfed all my children. I'd be lying awake at night, breastfeeding my baby and earning my degree in cholangiocarcinoma. I swear I knew more than the oncologist by the time I was done every, and and it paid off because I found clinical trials that he could participate in based on the mutations of the, the genomic mutations in his cancer. And it was all because of the work that I had done, not the oncologist. So when you're getting tiny little wins like that, it's very frustrating and angry. And I didn't trust the oncologist. He didn't, he wrote them off from day one. I'll never forget. He said, oh yeah, this isn't my first rodeo, you know, implying he knew how it was going to end. Um, but you can't, I don't know. I, I Maybe some people can just accept that. But it, And I almost wish that I could have not put myself through those months of what I did of trying to, I don't know, learn everything or contact every person, extend, like I had to go down every road and exhaust every option. That's such a burden. And I think it's interesting that you express that you felt relief when he died, because I think a lot of people would try and hide that feeling of, of a relief. I don't know if I showed that feeling. I, I'm not sure if I was open about it, but I can't remember going that night back to where we were staying. Cause of course, Chris didn't die while we were at home. He had to make things complicated. <laughs> But, um, and thinking, wow, that's the first time I think I've slept. I wasn't worrying. Like you weren't up every noise. Did he stop breathing? Is like, just, it was a constant state of panic and adrenaline. And I still don't think my body has actually come down off of that. I'm still like struggling through those, that feeling of adrenaline rush but it was the first time where I could just like you know like not have to be hyper vigilant and I'm sure it wasn't just a straight feeling of relief I'm sure there was so many other feelings that went in with that I'm you know you're devastated at the same time but that you could recognize wow you know that now the it's done and I can't affect this anymore I could stop worrying about him dying it was like, okay, now we move into, you know, survival mode or whatever I'm going. I, it, it was just two years for me. I 
still don't know what I'm doing or what I'm going to do or where I'm going or I have no plan. It's amazing that you're breathing still and showing up here and talking to us. With that trauma, what have you decided to share with the world? Not much of it, to be honest. (laughs) I found that from the time that Chris was diagnosed, I immediately, I've never written in my life, really, never considered myself, never journaled, never really kept a diary. It was just not my style of coping with things, I guess. I, I, you know what? I didn't know how to cope with anything. Um, and that's what I turned to immediately. I pick up my phone and go to the notes app and I would just type and write. And I feel that it's unfortunate that while Chris was sick, that I didn't have more time because I think some really powerful writing would have come out of those days. Um, Cause there was so much that just kept pouring out of me. Girl, you needed like 36 more hours in each of those days. Or 36 more arms to hold the babies and write both. 36 more hours, 36 more days, three less children, one less husband, and you would have been golden. Yeah, yeah. But you did start writing after, correct? I did write before. I've just never shared any of it. It's the I, and it's really quite powerful. And I'm at the point now, though, that I won't go even go back and read it. I won't even read stuff that I've written, you know, a year ago. Now I don't. I don't know. I don't want to read my writing or what my thoughts were in those moments. But yeah, it was about this. It was quite shortly, two months or so after Chris died. That Well, I initially started a blog, and I still have the blog, but I don't, uh, I put my, I tend to put writing on Instagram a bit more frequently now, it's, it's easier, um, and that's where all my widow sisters are, and uh, this amazing community, but um, I was so, I never had an Instagram account, I had never... I never posted pictures or publicly on Facebook or anything. I was so scared to hit like post on my first Instagram post. And I felt so old because the number of things I had to like Google on like how to work social media. But I did. And then I kind of just kept writing. I'm not a, a journal writer either. Like you were saying, like that was never your way of like being consistent. And like a lot of widows, I did find he- healing in writing on a blog, and I had done some of that too. And when you're saying you don't go back and read what you wrote, like totally there with you. And I think that's fine. That is part of your your healing because you got it out, and it's out there, and it can help somebody that's maybe a few steps behind you. But you're also still able to like leave that on the page and then move on to the next thing. I don't even know how linear that process needs to be either. So... Uh, yeah, mine hasn't been, that's the thing, like, I, you have plans, and then, I don't know, I don't know what I'm doing, I, I don't know, <laughs> I just share, um, <laughs> and I've made, and at this point, the purpose of sharing is, is the connections that I've made, I mean, and initially, it was always, uh, I very first, I started, with the blog, with the intention of, I needed to help people 
who were in the cancer, young cancer caregiver role. It's, it wasn't even about widowhood. It was those six months that Chris was sick, I was desperate and I couldn't find anybody else like me. I, I, I couldn't, there was, we would go to chemo and I'd be there. I'd be holding a newborn baby and I would search every time for somebody that wasn't like, I don't know, three decades older than us, you know? And I went to like a few support groups and it was all people in their fifties and sixties who were taking care of their elderly parents with cancer. And it was just like where I need, I would search, I would Google, like I couldn't find anybody like me. And I felt like I needed to find somebody like me so that I could believe that what was happening to me was true. Like, I'm about to have a baby. My husband has cancer. This is so horrible. This isn't true. This can't be real. And I truly believe it wasn't real. And I would wake up every day and be like, am I allowed to swear shit? <laughs> you know, like this is, this is actually my life. And I went, that's how it was for, I didn't get out of bed after Chris was diagnosed for three weeks and I couldn't. I couldn't, I couldn't even talk to my kids. My mom was like, I don't know. I was, I was just begging. I was going to like healthcare professionals, trying to get mental health help, like make it stop, make this stop. Like this cycle of like, this isn't real. This isn't really happening. And it felt like if I could find somebody else going through the same thing, it would be like, yep, this, like this really crappy stuff does happen. And it could, I don't know. I wouldn't feel so alone in it, I guess. Speaking of more crappy stuff, do you have another part to your story? Yeah. <laughs> Hold on, everyone. Here we go. <laughs> Maybe everybody should sit down. Stop driving. First, go get a snack so you can, you have blood sugar that can deal with this. Okay, go. 18 months after my husband died, from cancer, I received my cancer diagnosis. It just didn't really seem like that could be true either, but it was. It seems like you should demand a refund. Who can we talk to? Yeah. Oprah. Oh, Oprah. she probably could refund you. <laughs> I had a very frustrating time getting a diagnosis because I was told repeatedly that I had anxiety. Um, and it, you can have anxiety and have cancer, yeah, by the way. Yeah. It got to the point that I called 911 and took myself to the hospital in an ambulance because nobody would listen to me. And at the hospital, I was told there was nothing wrong with me and not to come back that I had health anxiety and that my husband died of cancer. You do not have cancer. And finally, I got somebody, I, I was bleeding vaginally, I was passing huge amounts of blood, but was told by a number of people that I probably just needed an IUD to regulate my hormones. And I've been through a lot of stress. And it was nothing. The bleeding was normal. Uh, but the bleeding I was having was not normal. It was quite severe. 
Do you ever want to say to people like, okay, I have been a girl my whole life, and I'm pretty sure that I'm familiar with how this is supposed to work. I don't know. I have never had like a regular bleeding between periods or anything. This is maybe it's normal for some people, but this is not my normal. Right. Is is the thing. I got a doctor. I, I asked for an ultrasound at the hospital and they no, we cannot give you an ultrasound. There's nothing wrong with you. Go home. Uh, finally, I got a new doctor who took was amazing. I had an ultrasound in two days, and I found out there was there was a once again a small spot. I don't know, like, is this how they like to break news to people or something like that? <laughs> um, I ended up before I saw an oncologist, I had pieces of tumor falling out of me, um, and I was diagnosed with advanced cervical cancer so I I had all my paps I had three babies in the last five years uh, multiple vaginal exam even a vaginal exam in like a pelvic exam in the hospital like I don't know what that was a month prior nothing wrong and I had a nine by seven centimeter tumor on my cervix so, um, and that's very large. <laughs> Most people with cervical cancer like have cancer cells and they just um, are able to scrape those off or cut them off. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, if you have a tumor that's less than four centimeters, you can have a hysterectomy. Uh, but mine was far too big to have a hysterectomy. So I... Um, you know, had multiple more scans um, and found out that it had not spread. Thankfully, that was like one of the happiest days of my life because I figured, you know, out of everything that's happened, you know, this, there can't, there's never good news in my life. Uh, and so that was great. And I did five rounds of chemo, 25 rounds of external radiation, and four uh, rounds of internal radiation i completed that that sounds like a party yeah 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 <laughs> yeah i hope you bought yourself a drink afterwards uh, so i start, i finished that at the start of the summer and i kind of spent the summer recuperating a bit and i'm starting now to feel more normal I'm getting, I'm working on, I went for the biggest, longest walk that I have in a long time today, actually. I'm really trying to, at, when school ended, I couldn't walk to the end of my driveway to get my son from the school bus. And I've just been working hard to get my energy back. And I will have, I'm expecting all clear scans, um, but I don't have those until the end of September. So that's where I stand I now. I feel like you haven't had a chance to breathe really or catch, breathe. Yeah. Catch, catch break. either. Yeah. What are you doing? What are you actively trying to do to deal with all this trauma? Because this is like your story is kind of like you were a prisoner of war for six months and then you had yeah. a little, not a, even a reprieve because you're dealing with that really heavy 
grief and just trying to figure out what life is and then you are thrown back into that you're back in the cancer world you're having to visit the hospital the same hospital the was. same nurses yeah, the same, same rooms. rooms yeah all of that stuff which i never planned to go back to was pretty surreal you know to be sitting in all of those same places like two years later you know pretty much mm-hmm. exactly from when he was um i just yeah, to go in and sit into the same chemo chair, you know, like that pictures of him sitting in holding our baby is just, what is this? I have a question. Did your second doctor call your first doctor and say, by the way, this was cancer, not anxiety? Please tell me yes. No. Call Oprah. We need Oprah to fix this too. <laughs> I had, I got them three blood transfusions actually, and that made the chest pain and the heart palpitations uh much better and i was like see it wasn't anxiety i don't need any more anxiety meds i just kept being prescribed anxiety meds an odd thing that i found though like rolling in this cancer community too a little bit is that i don't really consider myself to be part of the cancer community as much as the widow community i am still in grief i'm still and I'd be, you know, I, you know, be in a Facebook group or, or a cancer support group. And this is the worst thing that's ever happened to these people. And they're like losing their mind. And I'm just like, yeah, I know. I've been telling you for four months I had cancer. I know I have cancer. Um, is, the first thing I ask is the chemo you're offering. Is it palliative? Um, what's, you know, like... I wasn't even phased by it almost like, yeah, there's the moments where you're like, what is going on? What is this life? But I'm still grieving and I've been through so much worse and watching somebody else go through cancer is a little bit different than going other than having to revisit so many of these traumatic places. I don't know. For lack of better words, I want to say my cancer wasn't a big deal. You're just kind of like, whatever, here's another roadblock. Let's get through it. It was more of an inconvenience than it was like a, a world rocking experience, maybe. Here's a question for you. So my after Jason died, I got diagnosed with thyroid cancer a week after And thyroid cancer, like if you're going to get cancer, that's the cancer to get, right? But the thing that was so difficult for me was that I had to, I had some serious choices to make. And the person who I needed to talk to about those choices was not there. I mean, it was like, do we go nuclear? Do we go? And just that thought of if I make the wrong choice, my kids are orphans. And I'm trying to make this decision with a brain that is off. It's off offline. It's off my rocker. So I wonder if you had some of those same experiences or maybe they were different because it was 18 months apart. So maybe your brain was a little bit better at thinking or you were a little more used to not having Chris to talk to and to bounce ideas off of. I didn't really have any decisions to make. It's, I mean, other than was I going to do it or not do it? I mean, yes, I'm going to, I 
felt like it was easy to go through it all a second time because I already knew all the questions to ask. I already knew that I, I knew the deal. I knew the cancer deal. I know what getting chemo is going to be like. I know. I think there's the first time you go through the cancer, there's so much to figure out. And it's like, you're, it's, it's a blurry world in itself, like being in a part of that. And I was just like, I've already been here, you know, got the t-shirt. Let's just like, walk through it again. Like it, I think that made it. Did you put your t-shirt back on? <laughs> yes. So that you knew. Yeah, exactly. I did. Um, That's a good point though, that you had already kind of navigated some of those feelings before and some of those like practical And all those questions, so. like we had already been mm-hmm. to all the support. I don't know. There just was so many things to figure out the first time through that I already, I can't even give you a good example right now, but I don't like where to go to get the 50% off parking ticket, you know, or that those even exist. <laughs> Little things like that, like that, there are those supports. Like I was going to the hospital five days a week when I was getting radiation and like it, it was a lot. I wanted to ask you this question because I know a lot of people listening to your story might also feel void of hope and think that they, that there's no purpose for living or they keep getting knocked down and they're like why why do I have to keep starting over or maybe they're coming to that point in their mind where they're like I don't know how I can keep going you have lived so many things so much trauma with no reprieve if you were speaking to somebody that was in a position where they didn't think there was any hope what would you say to them as somebody who's lived through this you can be honest (laughs) Is there such a thing as hope when you keep getting knocked down? Well, that's what I was just saying. Like that is, it's so discouraging because I just get going again and then something else seems to knock me down. And honestly, I don't know what hope is. I I, I don't know what hope is. I know that when Chris was sick, the only way for me to go on was to desperately search to find some tiny thread of hope to hang on to because I couldn't go on unless there was some sort of hope. I think you have, uh, you know, precedence for feeling those feelings. Have you, have you done counseling? <laughs> have you done EMDR? I'm just no, like, not you EMDR. need some EMDR. I lady have been like a thousand sessions maybe i should try EMDR. i think you should i'm not an expert i have tried anything counseling like therapy a few times so where i live i think our healthcare systems are in a little bit of a crisis and mental health even more so and the help that i've gotten i think has been a little bit pathetic um, the wait to get the help is pathetic. The, the fact that it's not available and I've repeatedly tried and tried and tried. I don't know, maybe it's just not for me or maybe what I'm getting sucks, but I'm at the point where I'm almost giving up because it's like, I don't want to tell this story anymore. The best support that I've had is other widows. That's it. I swear I have PTSD. 
You do. You absolutely do. <laughs> no questions. Zero questions. It's what's used for PTSD treatment. It's not like traditional like talk therapy where it's like, let's talk about your past and relive it. Like it will get it out of where it is stored in your body and get it out enough that you reprocess and it reintegrates. If you have access to that ever, or if there are like, I don't know if you have like nonprofits in Canada that would provide that or sometimes through um, like, I don't, I know that somebody mentioned like, at least in the States, like there's like Catholic services or whatever that any religion usually has like access to those things. I mean, even if you just had like several sessions to kind of get it going, it you might notice a difference and it just helps like get it out of your cells and like whew, reprogram. It's finally starting to get a little better, but the way I've described how I feel is like somebody scares you and you get that adrenaline rush and you're just like, <gasps> like, you know, and it's like, I can't, it's two years later. I can't get that feeling out of my chest. Like that anxious. I don't know. It's like, it's awful. You're in a hypervigilant state still. And this is when I explain it. Like it took my feelings from feeling like a pokey thorn to a pebble like it was still there but it was like easier to carry and it didn't feel as traumatic so and I'm just telling you if you have to circumvent and find a different way to do it I mean even just like the online counseling things we've had we have lots of friends who have done that Mel does online counseling they have financial aid and I know like our friend her therapist has been doing EMDR online like some some therapists don't but some do because it's just about like engaging each hemisphere and so they'll be like they'll just instruct you what to do so yeah it's like a lifesaver and the other thing is Mm -hmm. that and Mel and I talk about this like all the time (laughs) that is that um like the therapy world they're grief stupid it's hard to find a therapist who actually knows anything about grief. When you go to a therapist, they're like, the five stages of grief. And you're like, yeah. what the heck are you talking about? Like, I was going to say a different oh. word, but I didn't want to say in front of the child. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. And, and I can also understand just like, even like a centimeter barrier. And you're like, nope, I can't even get over that that barrier. You know what I'm saying? Like... I'm out because you just have like too many other things. Okay, Anita. Most important question. It's a cheese question. I don't know the answer. What? You don't know this answer? You had time to prepare for this one. I know, but like, it's like, well, it's not though. It's like. Easy cheese. It's Velveeta. It feels like there's a lot of pressure behind this question. There's really not. There's so many different types. I'm going to, I was going to say goat cheese. But then it's like, that's a big commitment in one direction. What about like the sharp cheddars? <laughs> you know? You know what? You've earned multiple categories <laughs> for what you've been through, whatever you want to say. I love goat cheese. Here's the thing, Janice, please do not let this be a part of your stress. <laughs> like you have enough stress. So if this question stresses you out, we rescind the question and you don't have to answer it. I think we probably just came up with this question because we were like our brain went squirrel and we started asking about cheese there's like no reason behind it other than <laughs> well everybody loves cheese we though, just don't like cheese. it's fun actually our friend our friend who's a widow by the same cancer that chris had does not like cheese or eat cheese so i guess if you're like lactose okay. intolerant 
Mm-hmm. But we have a few vegan friends too. Or brie is really good. Like I really like the soft, really soft cheeses or like a really sharp, like a yummy, good cheddar. Thank you so much for joining us today, Janice. I feel like your story today has been a little bit different than others. And I think that it will resonate with other people too. Because I think a lot of people try and get to the end. And you are still in the middle. Not because you want to be, but that's just what life has dealt you. Yeah, thank you for keeping it real. And this is what it's like, everybody. It's not just somebody dies and then all of a sudden everything's fine. It's like we are in the middle and Janice is definitely in the middle showing us what it's all like. So, sucks. I'm so sorry. Prolonged middle. And that doesn't do anything to help you. (laughs) But thank you for being here. I think having somebody listen to your story is always a help and connecting with more people. The recognition that I am in the middle because I think I forget that I am in the middle and I feel like I should be more through it than I am maybe, or that like, not to compare yourself. Well, we all know don't compare your grief to somebody else's of course, but it's like, well, these people are doing this at two years out or whatever, but I still feel like I am in the middle or the start or I haven't even started to get through the grief. I'm still like coming down from the trauma of the cancer and then my own cancer. I don't know. Yeah. My point was it does help to recognize that I am in the middle. That's probably crinkly loud. Absolutely. We hope everybody has enjoyed listening to Janice's story. You can find her on Instagram. What's your Instagram name? Another Strong Widow. Remember to check out the Widow Wives Club on Facebook. If you're a widow, widower, or somebody who has lost their partner, just make sure you answer all the questions. If you want to check out our Patreon and help keep the podcast going, it's patreon.com slash WWDN. If you want to send us to go get some tacos, it's buymeacoffee.com slash widow we do now until we talk to you again i'm anita i'm mel and i'm Dana. and we're just two young widows and one who's smack in the middle and we're trying to figure out widow we do this is my favorite thing to discuss with you tell me what is it one of my favorite things i do enjoy tacos and cheese and dogs this is about how you cannot pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a phone plan especially when you're a widow your person is dead you might have kids you might need another option and you just want your phone to work you want unlimited texting and service and you want it to be like 25 bucks a month It blows my mind that they have plans that start at $15 a month. That is so cheap. And the cool thing is, is it uses other 5G networks. And so you don't have to pay extra for that. And you still get great service. Yep. Anita and I have traveled all over and I have used my phone. So I highly recommend it. And my mom's even on it. When my dad died, we put his phone down to the cheapest plan, which is $15 a month. And I think my mom's on the $20 a month plan and it's so worth it. It's so much cheaper than what we were all paying before. So I highly recommend it if you're on a budget or not, who cares? Ryan Reynolds is in charge of the company and they send you free stickers with Ryan Reynolds temporary tattoos. It's kind of the best. So. If somebody wants to sign up, what can they do, Anita? 
Go to trymintmobile.com slash WWDN. Seriously, you guys, such a great idea. Save yourself some money. And if you're worried about losing data or having any changes with your phone, not going to happen. They walk you through it. Everything's fine. It's the easiest process of all time. Again, that's trymintmobile.com slash WWDN.